0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is part two of a two-part episode, so if you haven't yet listened to episode 270, you'll want to start there. For those of you who have come back for part two, thank you. When we last left off, we learned that 32-year-old Barbara Skrilova was posing as the adopted 12-year-old daughter of Clara Morova. Barbara, who was going by the name Annika, or Anna at this time, had succeeded in manipulating Clara and her sister Katerina into locking up Clara's two young sons, holding them prisoner in their own home, and then carrying out a series of escalating forms of deprivation, torture, and abuse. It was only by a random stroke of luck that the boy's plight was discovered and they were saved. I'll start part two by giving you more details of the bizarre unfolding events in the Morova home, and then tell you the unbelievable tale of how Barbara Skrilova almost escaped all responsibility for her part in this horrendous abuse case. This is part two of The Girl Who Cried Orphan, Barbara Skrilova. The new father who had inadvertently witnessed a little boy, without clothes, dirty, disheveled, and alone in a small dark room, like a caged animal, on his baby monitor, was named Edward Trudy. Trudy called the police to report the strange image he'd seen by chance on this video monitor, and just in case he lost the feed before they arrived, he recorded it. As the police reviewed the video, they deduced that the signal must have originated from somewhere nearby. If not, Trudy would not have been able to pick it up on his monitor. They began knocking on doors and inquiring of the neighbors whether a small boy was present in their homes. If they said yes, they asked to see the child to make sure all was well. When they reached the home of 29-year-old Clara Morova, she answered the officer's inquiry by saying that the only child living in her home was her 13-year-old daughter, Annika. The police, deciding to be thorough, asked if they might come in and have a look around. They most likely wanted to make sure this was not the child they'd observed on the video. A long shot, perhaps, but they wanted to be sure. Clara told them that her daughter was ill and, quote, developmentally delayed, and it would upset her greatly to have strangers, especially uniformed officers, enter the home. They thanked her for her time and left. However, when they returned to Trudy's house, he had something else to report. He had kept the video feed open and could hear when the officers arrived in the home of Clara Morova and their conversation with her. He distinctly picked up the audio of the police inside her house, verifying that the video signal was indeed coming from her home. Officers rushed back and demanded to be let inside. Clara protested loudly, but they pushed past her. They began searching the rooms downstairs and could hear the voice of what appeared to be a young girl from upstairs who sounded very upset and was wailing loudly. Officers came upon a locked door under the staircase. They asked Clara to open it, but she said she didn't have the key. She said the door had been locked since she'd leased the home over six months earlier. Officers called for assistance to force the lock open. While they waited, Clara Morova's sister, Katerina, arrived. Both women continued to protest loudly and demanded the officers leave. They were ignored. But when the men arrived to force the door open, Clara, Katerina, and Clara's 13-year-old daughter, Anna, sat in front of the locked door and blocked it. Anna was an odd sight. Her mother said the girl was 13, but her behavior suggested a much younger child, almost toddler-like. As her mother claimed, she appeared to be developmentally challenged. She babbled incoherently, crawled on all fours, and rocked back and forth while sitting on the floor. The two women and the girl were forcibly removed from the front of the door. The girl began kicking and scratching at the officers and had to be restrained. As the officers entered the dark room, they were first struck with the awful smell that emanated from within. The unmistakable odor of urine, feces, and vomit was overwhelming. They covered the noses as best they could and continued. They soon encountered the small pale boy that they'd viewed on Trudy's video. He sat calmly in the middle of this horrendous filth in the small dark room. They demanded that Clara identify him. She said it was her son Andres. When they disgustedly inquired as to why she would keep him this way, she continued to berate them for entering her home and sticking their noses into her private affairs. She told them that it was none of their business and something they couldn't possibly understand. She became extremely upset, angry and agitated and began wailing incoherently. The police could get no further information out of her. However, the other woman who identified herself as Clara's sister, Katerina, did provide an explanation, and a ridiculous one. She said that her sister had moved into the house just a few months earlier and that her nephew, Andres, a big fan of Harry Potter books, became enamored of the little room under the stairs. She said it reminded him of Harry Potter's room in his aunt and uncle's house. He liked to play in there, she said. But Harry Potter hadn't been naked and covered in filth, without even a blanket to cover himself or a stick of furniture to sit on, they countered. To this, she just shrugged. Andrej was taken away to the hospital, and the women and the young girl were taken to police headquarters to be questioned. At the hospital, upon examination... Andrej was found to have scores of injuries, cuts and scars, welts on his buttocks and groin, and a large, oddly shaped circular scar on his behind. He was dehydrated and underweight and extremely dirty. He was very quiet and recoiled from the touch of even the most gentle and nurturing nurses on staff. They approached him very cautiously and, over time, earned his trust. Meanwhile, investigators were compiling more information regarding the Morova sisters. They discovered that there was a third child who resided in the home. Clara had another son, two years older than 10-year-old Andrej. Jacob was at school when the house was raided. Andres, the sisters said, was not enrolled in public school because he had a hearing problem and was homeschooled. Later, it was determined that Andrej's hearing was perfectly normal, and investigators were extremely skeptical that any schooling had occurred in their home. Jacob was sent for and examined as well. He had similar injuries as Andrzej, but not as many or as severe. He was cleared by medical staff, and he and the girl Annika, whom investigators had identified as Clara's adopted daughter, were both taken to a children's shelter in Brno to be cared for. While Andrzej was recovering in the hospital, investigators began carefully questioning his older brother. While he was nervous to speak at first, Jacob soon opened up and told them the whole sordid story about what he and his brother had been through. What he would tell them would shock and appall all who heard it. The boy said that he and his brother's life had been normal up until the summer of the previous year, 2006. Although their parents had divorced, they were still well cared for until that time. Their father had remained a presence in their lives, and their grandparents were also involved, and the boys spent a great deal of time with their extended family. Their mother, Clara, they said, had been a good mother, caring and nurturing. That was until Annika came to live with them. Their mother had grown fond of the orphan girl after being introduced to her by their aunt Katerina. Clara had taken in the girl who was sickly and needed a lot of attention. Then she'd formally adopted her. The horror had started out of the blue, the boys said. It was a shocking turn of events, and even as they recounted how the events unfolded over a year later, they seemed unable to give any sort of explanation of why it happened. The whole family the boys, their mother, Aunt Katerina, and their adopted sister Anna had traveled about 30 minutes north of their home to a countryside cabin. The boys were excited, believing it would be a fun family vacation. When they arrived, three other adults joined the group. A woman named Hanna Basova, a former co worker of their Aunt Katerina, arrived. She was introduced to them as Aunt Nancy. The other two were men named Jan Skrilla and Jan Turek. Both had also worked at the daycare center with Katerina. All three were also members of the Grail Movement, the cult-like spiritual group that Barbara Skrilova, a.k.a. Anna, had introduced the Morova sisters to. Jan Skrula, it would later be discovered, was also Barbara's brother. Note, at the time of the investigation into the boy's abuse, Investigators still didn't know the true identity of Anna, Clara's so-called adopted daughter, but as we learned in part one, she was in reality a 32-year-old woman named Barbara Skrilova. Trigger warning, the abuse these two young boys suffered is detailed in the next part. Skip ahead about two and a half minutes if you are especially sensitive to this topic. Immediately upon arrival at the cabin, the boys were placed inside dog cages in separate areas of the house. They were isolated from each other in this way. The boys were forced to eat from dog bowls. They were in utter shock when the abuse began so suddenly and unexpectedly. They had never experienced anything like this before, and now their mother and aunt were both physically and psychologically abusing them and bringing in others to do so as well. Bags were placed over the boys' heads and they were beaten with belts and bamboo poles. They had hot water poured over them. Lit cigarettes were put out on their groins. Their mother, they said, didn't even smoke, but it appeared she purchased the cigarettes specifically to abuse her children with. The adults used forks and other sharp objects to scratch the skin on the boy's backs, legs, and arms. Once, Andrej's head was held under water until he was sure he would drown. Psychological torture was employed as well. They were taunted and called terrible names and degraded. They were forced to repeat vulgar things and then punished for doing so. They were also forced to dig shallow graves and made to lie in them. As they did so, they were told over and over that they were already dead. The boys were sometimes made to abuse each other as well. Andréj was abused more frequently and more harshly for some unknown reason. Did he resist more than his older brother? Cry and plead more? It's a mystery. The worst incident of torture and abuse the boys reported was inflicted on Andréj. One day Andrej was taken out of his cage, surrounded by the adults and forcibly held down. His mother took a knife and cut a piece of the flesh of his buttocks. This was what made the large and strange scar the emergency room staff had found. The piece of flesh was then passed around among the adults and eaten. The story of the Kurim cannibalism case would horrify the community after this detail was leaked to the press. After days of torture and abuse, the group left the cabin and the boys returned home with their mother and Anna. The new school term was set to begin, but only Jacob was enrolled for the new school year. He was allowed to return after being repeatedly threatened that if he told anyone what had happened, he'd suffer even worse abuse. He didn't say a word. Andrej, instead of returning to school, was kept prisoner in the daycare center, chained to a desk, and closely monitored by Hanna Basova. He was still beaten on occasion and was not allowed to use the restroom, but was made to relieve himself in a bucket. Andres also reported that the two men, Jan Skrilla and Jan Turek, were tasked with bringing him meals and taking him out of the daycare center briefly in order to provide him with some, quote, exercise. Andres remained chained up and watched over at the daycare center until Clara leased the home in Kurum later that year. When they moved to Kurum, Andres was then locked into the room under the stairs a space that was little more than a closet. So what was the motivation for the abuse of the boys? Was it simply a sickness that was passed along from Barbara Skrolova's deranged mind to the Morova sisters who were vulnerable to brainwashing? Or was there something even more sinister going on? Was it something wrapped up with the twisted grail movement philosophy that Barbara and her friends and family were preaching? Some believed that the message of the original grail movement, kind of a train up a child in the way he should go and he will not depart from it philosophy, had been distorted and exaggerated to allow the boy's abusers to feel justified in even the worst abuse inflicted upon them. But there was an even more disturbing theory. The reason the boys were saved was that the neighbor's video camera had picked up the feed from a camera installed in Clara Morova's home. This camera was recording Andrej practically 24 hours a day. Several videotapes of the boy in his room cage were found in the home as well. Was his abuse being videotaped for the sick pleasure of perverted customers who would pay for such disgusting viewing material? Andrej and Jacob had their heads covered while they were beaten at the cabin. They rarely saw their abusers. Is it possible that the cabin in the countryside was chosen so that these perverts could take part in beating the children, something they would pay money for? It's almost unimaginable in its depravity, if true. Investigators wondered about this because they learned that the two sisters held leases on several properties. Clara wasn't even employed at the time of her arrest, and Katerina worked at a daycare center. Neither would earn them the amount of money needed for these expenses. Investigators wondered if they were making money by selling video downloads to pedophiles. But what of Barbara? What did the boys have to say about her after their rescue? Well, this is also curious because they only knew her as Anna and thought of her as their sister. They not only professed to care about her, they almost seemed to hold her in reverence. The boys often repeated that their sister was, quote, special. When asked what they meant, they answered that she was, quote, chosen by God. One example reported about their high regard for Anna was demonstrated to investigators when the boys said that the adults would sometimes ask them to make a choice. They were told that Anna would be subjected to three lashes with a leather strap, or if they wished to spare her from this, they could receive the lashes themselves. They almost always chose to take the punishment for Anna. This, it appears, was all orchestrated by Barbara, a.k.a. Anna herself, or perhaps in conjunction with other Grail members. The whole sordid story seems to be a mashup of religious zealotry, mental illness, child exploitation and abuse, and narcissistic personality disorders. There may be other facets to this horror show as well, but I can't really name them right now off the top of my head. It's just too crazy. And speaking of Barbara, a.k.a. Anna, what became of her after the boys were discovered? She was still believed to be a 13-year-old girl who was physically, mentally, and developmentally challenged when she was placed in the children's center. Hospital staff as well as social workers attempted to examine her to see if she had suffered any abuse as the boys had, but she pitched such a fit every time anyone came close to her that it was impossible. Of course, number one, she was playing the role of a special needs child with emotional outbursts, so that was part of the act. But number two, She also couldn't let anyone examine her and discover that she was not, in actuality, a barely adolescent girl. But she could only pull this off so long, right? So the next thing we learn is that just days after being taken to the children's center, Barbara disappeared. A large-scale search was conducted for her. No one believed that a girl with her disabilities could have escaped on her own, and they feared she might have been carried off by members of the weird cult her mother belonged to, or someone worse. Even though the woods surrounding the area was searched grid by grid, canine trackers were employed, and every local police jurisdiction was alerted, no trace of Anna was found. But DNA was extracted from the clothing she left behind, which would later help to determine her true identity. In the meantime, her photo was broadcast in the media in hopes that someone may have seen the girl and call in a lead for investigators. Of course, it was reported that this girl was connected to the case of the abused boys and their mother, Clara, and Aunt Katerina, who were being held on suspicion of child abuse. Former co-workers of Katerina's noticed something strange. The adopted daughter of Clara looked an awful lot like a woman they knew by the name of Barbara Skrolova. She had also been hired to work at the daycare center and had once shared an apartment with Katerina. They informed investigators of this and investigators pursued this new avenue in the case. They began looking into the adoption of Anna and could find no official records of her birth, education, or anything else. Everyone who had been said to vouch for Anna's story about being an abandoned child turned out to be fakes and liars. Now with a possible identity to attach to the missing girl, investigators sent DNA samples they had collected for a possible match. The lab came back with the results. It was a match to Barbara Skrilova. At this point, Barbara Skrilova had no charges against her, but was simply a person of interest the Czech police wanted to question about the boy's case, but she was still missing. Then, on June 15, 2007, about a month after her disappearance, she resurfaced in Copenhagen, Denmark. She was in the company of her father and his attorney, and was seeking a new passport at the Czech embassy in that country. Her attorney made a statement to the media once her whereabouts were reported, He said that Barbara had done nothing wrong, but had been so distraught over the whole sordid affair in Curum, that she'd fled to her father and the safety of other relatives. He explained her deception, identifying herself as a 12-year-old orphan, as a product of her genetic disorder. Okay, you're going to make me say it again, huh? Okay, here we go. Being born with hypopituitarism, which made her appear childlike. He explained that she, quote, identified with being a child more than an adult. She wanted to be among children because as a child she felt happy and safe. She wasn't treated as an adult. No one took her seriously. People laughed at her and made fun of her because of the way she acted like a child, After it was made clear that no arrest was imminent, Barbara spoke to the media herself a few days later. She elaborated on the creation of Anna, saying that it had began when she started working at the daycare center with Katerina. Working with the children put her in a more childlike state, she said, and she sought mental help for this, but nothing changed. Katerina became her friend and confidant, and she sympathized with her plight. She said that Katerina helped her assume a new identity as a child. Finally, when she was asked about Clara's boys and her involvement in their abuse, she adamantly stated that the boys had not been abused nor ever held prisoner. Andrej had only been locked in the closet the day he was found, she claimed, and only for a couple of hours. She said this had been done as a last resort. The child, who had major behavioral issues, threatened to kill both her and his brother Jacob, Barbara said. Clara had locked him in the closet to keep the other children safe and to correct his behavior. Barbara was requested to return to the Czech Republic to speak with investigators. Her attorney assured them that she would be there on July 13, 2007, as agreed. But she never showed. Barbara Skrilova was in the wind once again. The next time she resurfaced was in Oslo, Norway, where she claimed to be a 12-year-old boy. As I already recounted at the beginning of Episode 270, Part 1 of this story, Barbara once again was playing a child in distress and took on the persona of Adam Farner. Once her true identity was discovered, she was finally extradited to the Czech Republic to answer charges of being complicit in the abuse of the Morova boys. While investigators couldn't prove that Barbara had taken part in the abuse of the boys, she was being criminally charged as an accessory, since as an adult, she had failed to report the abuse. She was charged and held without bail on February 11, 2008. Now her story changed, and she said she was also physically and psychologically abused by Katerina. She said she was forced to pretend to be Anna. She claimed that she had also been locked up like Andrej. Katerina had easily controlled her, Barbara claimed, because she was dependent on her due to her, quote, epilepsy and mental illness. Katerina controlled her by injecting her with drugs and force-feeding her other medications that made her brain hazy. She became brainwashed into believing she was on, as she said, and then was presented by Katerina to Clara as an orphan. Clara had been convinced by Katerina to adopt her, she said. Why did Katerina want Clara to adopt her? Barbara claimed it was to, quote, sell her to evil men that do ugly things to children, end quote. But the authorities weren't buying it. All three women, Barbara and the Morova sisters, were indicted in April of 2008. At trial, all three women tried to point the finger at each other. Clara and Barbara both claimed to have been brainwashed by the Grail movement, specifically at the hands of Barbara's father, Joseph. Clara testified that it was Joseph that would send her texts with instructions on how to torture her sons. In the end, all three women were found guilty to various degrees. Katerina was said to be the main instigator of the boys' abuse and was sentenced to 10 years. Clara was believed to have been brainwashed by her sister and Barbara, but as the mother to the boys, she was given nearly as long a sentence as Katerina, nine years behind bars. Barbara was convicted of aggravated cruelty and sentenced to eight years in prison. However, she would serve only five after her attorney successfully argued that her, quote, psychological welfare had suffered greatly during her incarceration. But as a condition of her release, Barbara was ordered to serve five years probation. The other adults, Hannah Basova, Jan Skrula, and Jan Turek, were also found guilty and sentenced. Basova and Skrula to seven years, and Turek to five years in prison. Clara was released from prison in October 2013, after serving five years of her nine year sentence and given four and a half years probation, she has since moved in with her sister Gabriella. She is allowed visitation with her sons, who at the time of her release were 14 and 16, but is prohibited from living with them. Their father sought custody of the boys, but was frustrated in his attempts because he was unemployed. His mother became the boys' legal guardian, and they resided with her. Katerina was released from prison in June 2014. She remains estranged from her family, and her whereabouts are now unknown. Barbara Skrilova has also kept a low profile after her release. It's believed she is still living in the Czech Republic, but has not been seen in the public eye for several years. In 2009, the horror movie Orphan was released in American theaters. Orphan, which became a franchise after a second movie, Orphan First Kill, was released in 2022, is loosely based on the Barbara Skrilova case. In the movie, Esther, a nine-year-old orphan from Russia, is adopted by a couple with two young children. Over time, Esther's behavior becomes disturbing, and the family starts to suspect she may have played a role in the house fire that killed her original family. As she becomes more dangerous, it is revealed that she is a 33-year-old woman born with hypopituitarism. It is also discovered that she has murdered at least seven people, including the last family who adopted her. Like they say, truth is stranger than fiction. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Can you believe that the first month of 2023 is already coming to a close? We hope you'll join us again next month for a brand new series. This one is a super dark, creepy case, perfect for those long winter nights. So make sure to subscribe or follow Once Upon a Crime so you won't miss it. Would you like to receive text updates from Once Upon a Crime? You can get true crime trivia, event info, giveaway offers and more by text. You can opt in by texting OUAC to 408-676-1770. That's the letters OUAC to 408-676-1770. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Ludlow. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Additional research and outline for this episode was provided by Emma Battaglia. Until next time, be good to one another.